This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Ed Kolojo, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. We should point out, Jeremy and myself haven't caught up for a long time personally, and we've we've actually both been in in the wars. Jeremy doesn't even know about my news. So Jeremy, can you t- explain to the masses yeah. what, what, what's happened to you of late? Um, well, look, a very dear friend of mine lost his mother suddenly late last year, and because of COVID, all of us mates couldn't, well, I could go because it was down here, but a lot of his friends around the country couldn't go. So we thought that we would, you know, in honour of his mum, would take our friend Charlie and would go away jet boating. Now, jet boating is when you jump in a very small boat with a big V8 in the back of it, you really go up and you dodge rocks up a river. Um it's very Kiwi. The Hamilton jet was invented by a Kiwi, and we've done it for generations. Cut a long mm. story short, boat that I was in had a rock. We capsized, so I got thrown out of the boat, lucky to be alive, but the boat driver was stuck underneath the boat. For 10 minutes, we couldn't get him off. We had to get uh, another boat to come back. We thought he was going to die. He thought he was going to die. We managed to escape that one, and, um, and with a bit of help, we were sitting on the side of the river going, hugging and going, oh, we've just survived the biggest thing in our lives. What are we going to do with the boat? And the boat's capsized, so we thought we'll, do, we'll go out, we'll turn the boat back over, we'll tie it down to the trailer and we'll bugger off and work out what we're going to do next. So we went and turned the, turned the trailer over and um, we didn't hear anything running, but we could certainly smell fuel, but there was something oh. still igniting. Uh, and when we turned it over, the air came in and we blew oh. ourselves up. So. Um, oh. Wow. Uh, I've been basically for the last three weeks. I'm, I don't know, secondary burns all over my face, my arm. I'm, I'm wearing this because I don't want you guys to see it. But uh, you're very lucky to be alive. And uh, yeah, so that's my story. Brad, that, what, what's that, wrong with that you? That is amazing. Uh, well, I was just, well, my, mine's not as, in, as dramatic as yours, but I actually tested positive for COVID oh. literally 15 minutes ago. Oh, um, so COVID. That's, COVID, uh, yeah, good times. Um, but look, enough about us. Yeah. And look, thankfully, thankfully, Jeremy, it's great that you're alive. Thanks, uh, I, had, I had seen the uh, photos of your arm, um, I guess, a, a couple of days after the accident, and it was gruesome. But uh, I'm pleased to see it has recovered a fair bit. No, thank you. It does look good. For me, this is one of our most. Like, I, I love all our podcasts. Yeah. Um, but this this research that you've done it is is really interesting. Up our alley. And we did have Jeremy, sorry, we did have the podcast lined up last week, but Jeremy couldn't make it because of his accident, which is a, a fair, uh, you know, sick note to uh, pull out. But I was particularly keen on getting Jeremy on this chat because we have been talking about this issue of tyre rubber and pollution associated with for a long time. And your research is particularly, I, I say groundbreaking, fascinating, um, but the implications of it are, are enormous. I don't feel as I'm overstating this, but look, Let's just backtrack a little bit. You're an associate professor from the University of Washington, but you, you mentioned before that you're uh, living the dream on sabbatical in Hawaii at the moment, which is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, how, how did you get? How did you get interested in sort of, I guess, water pollution and 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 stormwater pollution in particular? Yeah. Thanks for the the kind words. I feel like it all started, you know, like everything starts when I was a little kid growing up. I I mean, I I grew up in New Hampshire. My grandfathers were pretty outdoorsy and my whole family would go fishing and kind of spend time near the water. I loved to go fishing with my grandfather and that just kind of started a 
a lifelong interest in being outside, being near the water, kind of taking care of the environment. I, I went and got an undergrad degree in chemical engineering, but always kind of heading in this environmental direction. And then my, my graduate degrees were in environmental engineering, working on water quality and specifically how chemicals impact uh, aquatic organisms. We have this basic problem where we're, we're flooding our environment with literally hundreds of thousands of chemicals. And the problem we have as a society is figuring out which ones matter, like mm. which ones are important, which ones do we have to manage carefully through like engineered technologies, for example. That's that space I've always worked in, I guess. And so tell us about the, the coho salmon and is it Puget Sound or Puget Sound? Puget, Puget. Puget, um, Puget. Yeah, Puget Sound or the Salish Sea, um, <laughs> which is like the, the Salish Sea is maybe the more traditional Native American uh, name for the entire coastal region up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, so coho salmons. I came to the University of Washington in 2014. So I've been here about seven years now. And I've always worked at this intersection of, of water chemicals and fish. I came up here and I had an opportunity to kind of start some new projects. And people started to tell me that something in stormwater was killing coho salmon. And they didn't know what it was. And for me, somebody who runs like what I would call an environmental mass spectrometry lab, you know, where my lab is designed to kind of figure out what chemicals are in water and kind of what happens to them. That was an incredibly interesting observation because you, you kind of had this mystery. These fish, you know, salmon are fish that are born in freshwater when they're maybe about a year old. Coho salmon, you know, juvenile coho salmon go out to the ocean. They live in the ocean for two or three years and then they come back as adults when they're half a meter long. Um, oh, wow. You know, two thirds of a meter long there five kilograms, six kilograms, seven kilograms, some of them. They're a good size, mm. big fish. And they're totally fine until it rains. And then those fish die within, you know, hours to a day after rainstorms. Wow. And this was something that's actually been observed in the Puget Sound region for decades now. The first observations go back to the 1980s with real careful scientific documentation in the 90s. And, you know, it, it happens every single fall to all these adult fish in multiple watersheds. You know, it's not just like one little spot. It's happening yeah. in a bunch of spots to a bunch of different coho populations, right? So yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll start there. And nobody knew what was causing it. And so it was obvious that the coho salmon were trying to tell us something about water quality. And, you know, something bad is in that stormwater. And that's how I got involved here. What proportion or what number of returning, returning salmon are actually dying? For the last 15 years or so, there's been a pretty substantial effort by citizen science groups to document how many fish are being affected. A lot of these are in little creeks. I mean, these are, these are creeks that are maybe, let's say, 2 to 10 meters wide, you know, 2 mm. to 15 meters wide. You know, some of them are really small. Coho salmon can run into, like, incredibly small areas to reproduce. Wow. And so all these citizen scientist groups, like, literally people who just live near these watersheds, in some of these watersheds, those people go out to the creek every single day. They walk a section of creek. They count the fish that have returned. If they find a dead coho salmon, they'll cut it open to see if it laid its eggs. And they've been collecting data on these mortality rates now for, you know, 10 to 15 years. And in the most impacted watersheds, more than 90% of the fish die before spawning. So it's anywhere from like 10 to 20% up to 90% or more. That's yeah. staggering. Like these are big fish. They're not like little water fleas with, you know, high sensitivity of, of pollution. Yeah. They're big these are yeah. big fish. These, these are fish literally, uh, if you came to Seattle, you might visit the Pike Place Market and you would buy one of these coho salmon to put on your grill and have a wonderful, beautiful dinner. I mean, these not, are not me. Big. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. I'll, 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 be I'll be with you, mate. All the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, so there's this, there's this decades-long 
problem and people have obviously, you know, uh, speculated or what might be causing it. And you've obviously, with your fancy lab and your inquisitive mind, you've gone, I'm going to try and work out what is the issue here. Overwhelmingly, the, the general consensus was it was stormwater pollution killing these salmon because it, obviously the, the salmon were dying just after rainfall. Is that a fair Yeah, comment? there there was um, there was a really clear link to stormwater and the rainstorms being critically important. I think it's actually an interesting story how that even came about, some of that like careful documentation, because I think it's something that's actually globally relevant. We've polluted the heck, you know, everywhere in the globe, we've polluted the heck out of our environment over the last hundred years. And I think in the last few decades, particularly in urban areas, there's a recognition for restoration efforts, you know, daylighting creeks, pulling rivers out of pipes, restoring floodplains to, you know, rivers and things like that, even in the midst of a lot of people. That happened in Seattle in the 1990s, where they were spending millions of dollars to restore urban creeks. People wanted the park space and a place to walk their dog and take their kids out, you know, to a little green area. And one of their metrics of success was, we want salmon back here successfully using the habitat we just built for them. You know, we took this thing out of a pipe. We took the big riprap rocks out of it. It's got beautiful gravel and, you know, trees now. And so the first people to really know that there was a a serious problem going on were people out there to collect restoration effectiveness data. Like they were monitoring how effective the salmon returns were. And they'd be out there and they'd see two salmon, like individuals. They're like, oh, there's two salmon. You know, they have certain body markings or a size or coloration. You could tell like that's that fish. And those fish were totally fine. And then a rainstorm would hit and they would find those exact same two fish like 50 feet downstream dead the next day. And that wow. was that was just that really clear evidence. Like we've watched those fish for the last week, been dry. They've been totally fine. It just rained, you know, one centimeter last night. The river came up a little bit. And now those same two fish are dead downstream and the female is full of eggs. Oh, so wow. it, it, it was just a clear evidence that like something bad yeah. came down the water, right? So obviously you've got this cocktail of contamination in, in the stormwater flows. How do you go about working out what is the key ke- chemical or chemicals that is causing these these fish die-offs? Yeah, um, sweat and hard work, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and, and money, you know, it takes yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, so the, the usual ingredients. So first I have to say, this isn't just me. Like I really yeah, represent yeah. A, a much bigger team and I really want to respect you know, my collaborator, Jen McIntyre, she does the ecotoxicology, like she has the fish lab. People like Nat Schultz, NOAA, National Marine Fisheries Service, they've been working on this for decades now, documenting the, the biology of this. So yeah, so it's just a, a much bigger group of people who involved in all this. So it, it did take a village. And so I do want to start like how it happened with that. But I think one of the first things we try to do, at least from a water quality perspective, is look for chemicals that were always present if the fish died. We just started collecting water samples from like lab exposures and events in the field. So like in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, we'd give out our cell phone numbers to all these citizen science groups. And we said, if you see a sick fish, like a a fish that's in the process of dying, call us up. And we would literally jump in our car with like coolers and water bottles and we'd go collect samples and we're trying to get the water that started to kill the fish, right? Because the yeah. water is flowing down river. Yeah. So if you go the next day, the water that killed the fish is out in the ocean, right? Yeah. It's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're trying to get as close to the start of those mortality events as possible. Mate, it would be pretty cool. You'd be jumping in your car. I can imagine that. You'd be like, right, where you go? <laughs> it would be intense. Yeah, it was. I mean. We had a go team and we had, we would keep like coolers with like a complete kit to like collect samples and also collect the fish, dissect, you know, collect fish tissues. We'd have that type of stuff in our car. And, you know, it was, it was kind of a, it was an exciting time. It required some commitment from my lab group for sure. But just in doing that, you know, one of the first things we started to see was a bunch of chemicals in that water that were in some way associated with roads. And this Mm. really validated like, Prior statistical modeling had said, like, if you have more people in the watershed, if you have more roads, you have more traffic, the percentage of fish that die is higher. So there's already like linkages between transportation and infrastructure and stormwater. And then we started to see the water quality 
exactly match that. We're like, we're seeing chemicals coming out of off of roads in those streams when fish are dying. And so that just really got us thinking about the possible role of vehicles, roads, roadway runoff here. More specifically, we also made a list of all the chemicals that the scientific literature said could kill a fish. And we kind of inputted those in our instrument. We have some expensive instrumentation anyways. I'm, I'm yeah. not going to go into the details. It's called high-resolution yeah. mass spectrometry. Yeah. It tries to detect everything in water. And we told it to look for these toxic chemicals. One of the first ones that popped up just had a link to tire rubber. And, and it was almost, it, it didn't turn out to be the one that was killing the fish. Yeah. But it really kind of got us thinking about like, do tires have a role in this? From there, we started to look at tires more carefully and closely. We started to grind up tire tread, you know, like little bits of tire off the tread and soak that in water. In 2017, Jen McIntyre, again, she does the fish lab. She does all like the Mm -hmm. biology of this mortality. She saw that tire leachates, you know, that soaking those little bits of tire in Mm -hmm. water killed juvenile coho salmon every single time she put them together. Like the coho salmon could not survive the water that the tire rubber had soaked had been so So we knew something, you know, starting in 2017, we knew something in tires was highly toxic to coho salmon. And then something in tires was toxic to coho salmon. That same fall, Jen McIntyre did exposures to adult chum salmon and adult coho salmon together. Like they're both being exposed to tire leachate or groundwater control. And in doing that, she saw that only the coho salmon were affected and the chum were unaffected. And that was also important data because out in the field, sometimes there's two species of salmon in those creeks and the coho salmon die and the chum salmon do not. So they have this like differential sensitivity. So we also saw that like tire leachate, you know, the the tire rubber bits, whatever they put in the water would kill coho and it wouldn't kill chum. So again, that aligned with like the field. So By 2017, I'd say we were laser focused on tire rubber, tire rubber ingredients, what chemicals they're using to make tire rubber. Tell us what's in a tire. I'll start by saying this. When we would look at that tire rubber leachate with our instrument, our instrument was typically detecting two to 3,000 chemicals in the tire rubber leachate. So it's not like you, you know, we made this nine tire mixture. We took like, Bits of new tire, bits of used tire from a bunch of different brands, a bunch of different tire types. We just, we just had, a, you know, we tried to make the road. What sort of yeah. tires on the road, right? So we made this nine tire mixture. We soaked that in water and we see thousands of chemicals there. So it's not like we're sitting here like, oh, which of these three chemicals is it? Yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like we're overwhelmed. And our instrument just doesn't tell us a name either. Like you see that in the movies, you know, they do like crime scene investigation yeah, yeah. here in the US, you know, there's a detective yeah, thing so and they're just like, yeah. they'll put the sample in and it spits out like the name of the chemical. And <laughs> my group dies every time they see that because that process takes like months and maybe even years, you know, it's just so hard to do. So anyway, so we saw just a ton of chemicals in that water sample and the vast majority are unknown. And there's no place you can go and find a list of the chemicals used to make tires. You know, you can find a couple main ingredients, but all that information is confidential and proprietary business information. It's a protected trade secret for all the tire companies. You know, they're not releasing their ingredients. Of course they're not. Yeah, they don't. So we had a difficult task because we can't find any ingredient list for tires. We can find general insights, you know. Um, yeah, like but no 30, what, 30% plastic, 40% actual rubber. I mean, what, 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 yeah, what's, like, what's that general? Yeah, I mean, tires, you know, you can have a natural rubber. You can have synthetic rubber. The tire industry says that your tires are the most highly engineered part of your car. And that that's true. Like, the tires are incredibly highly engineered. These are... These are serious, serious manufacturing processes to build something like a tire. They use a whole portfolio of chemicals to do many things. You need a chemical to help the steel tread in the tire stick to the rubber. You need a chemical to make the tire a certain softness or hardness. You need things called antioxidants in tires, things designed to prevent 
ozone or sunlight or oxygen from literally breaking down the rubber and weakening your tire. I mean, if you think about it, you know, like your car tires might last for five to 10 years as you drive around the highway at 120 kilometers an hour, right? Like mm. safely, you know, mm. and you break and you corner and you do all these things. Mm. It takes a lot of work to build a product yeah. that can do that. Yeah. And that's done with the chemistry. And so it's it's a serious material. This, this sounds like a, have you seen that film Dark Waters? I have, yeah, I have. Brad, if you haven't seen it, got to say it, it's fantastic. So let me get this straight. They're not telling us, and it makes sense, it's proprietary. If you're Pirelli or Firestone and you want the F1 contract, well, I've got the best tire and I'm not going to tell you what's in it. But at the same time, when they start killing things and you start finding them out and then they don't tell you, isn't that a bit wrong or am I just a bit slow? <laughs> I'll let you use the word wrong. I'll, I'll okay. say what's yeah, hard yeah, about yeah, that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll say what's hard about that. It's difficult to evaluate the environmental safety of a product when you don't know what's in it because you don't know what to look for out in the environment, whether that's water or air or soil, right? You know, if you're going to do something like look at, in a molecular cell assay or give something to a fish or a daphnia or a shrimp or a crab to, to test its toxicity, all that requires knowledge of what you start with, right? It, it requires knowledge of the chemical or the chemical mixture. And um, so it's very difficult to prove something is either safe or harmful when you don't actually know what's there. And, and so that was the basic challenge we had, trying to go from this big, complex mixture with literally thousands of chemicals to some small group of chemicals or a single chemical within that that had toxicity to coho salmon. It, what, what does Transport USA have in their regulations in regard, or do they have any um, regulations in regards to tire manufacturers? Do, do they regulate that at all, or is there any regulation? There's a lot of regulations that apply to tires. Like there, there's basic regulations on like the integrity of the tire as mm -hmm. a safety component of a vehicle, sure. right? And yeah. so there's multiple types of regulations that manage multiple characteristics of the tire with respect to its environmental mm, performance yeah. i think it's sort of in this place of it's should be non-toxic or you know although i'm not sure what sorts of evidence are need to support or justify that. yeah like you know it that's still a bit of a mystery to me um yeah i, I think in general in most of the world at least in the united states um you can use chemicals until they're proven harmful, right? So they're assumed to be safe. And this is the this is the staggering thing. Like there is no like you you're sort of being nice about it, but there's no environment. There's no requirement. There's no requirement. Everything should be non toxic, but there's no requirement to actually prove that it isn't toxic before you even use it. Like and obviously these are used on a mass scale. Like obviously you know how many cars are there in the world? Each has a four tires or whatever. They lose about a kilo of their weight over, over their lifespan. You know, it, obviously everyone's seen the sides of roads and Formula One tracks, you know, tire wear and tear, et cetera. And the, and the mass of tire wear and tear into our environment is, is enormous. It's, it, it is the number one source of microplastics in our ocean is vehicle tire wear and tear. But the fact that there's no definitive proof that they are environmentally safe is a real concern, particularly if your study is actually finding that it is killing big fish in big numbers, in big waterways as well, quickly, yeah. That's the fish that are dying. What about the fish that aren't dying and, yeah. and we're still eating them, but what effect is it actually happening on them? Have you, have you, and us. What, what, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should tell you more about the specific chemical before yeah. we start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah almost yeah. like the end stream. Like you're, you're going to the, you know, the logical <laughs> Sorry, that's us. places, you know, um, but yeah, and there's a lot of chemicals. We're not really told what they are. In general, it took my postdoctoral researcher. His name is Zhen Yutian. He put in some heroic effort to kind of like cut this complex mixture of more than 2,000 chemicals down to a little group of four. So what we did was uh, we did something called uh, 
toxicity, identification and evaluation, or effects-directed analysis. These are ways you start with a, a complex mixture that has toxicity and you kind of get to the harmful components in it. We basically cut these mixtures up, you know, and we did chemical separations where you like let one group of chemicals through a separation, you keep another group back or, you know, you just manipulate the chemistry of the mixture. That took two and a half years, a lot of lab time. It was a, a, a pretty serious effort. And at the end of the day, we we kept simplifying the mixture and we kept basically removing chemicals out of this 2000. And obviously, there's lots of things that don't work. And at the end of the day, we saw something. We had a big peak in a mixture of just four chemicals that was still killing the coho salmon with the same symptoms and the same speed and and all that. And it had a chemical formula of C18H22N2O2, right? And so pretty much by late 2019, our job was to figure out what C18H22N2O2 was. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we started to look for similar chemical formulas of things that were used in tires. And we found this anti-ozonic compound called Mm. 6-PPD. That chemical formula was C18H24N2. So it's just different by like the oxygen and hydrogen. It was was almost the same Mm. formula. We dug into the scientific literature and we found this paper that the tire industry published in 1983 that said when you take 6-PPD, Its job is to protect your tires from ozone attack, right? Like there's a little bit of ozone in the air and that breaks the rubber down. 6-PPD is an anti-ozonant or antioxidant. And when that reacts with ozone, this paper in the midst of this table said that it made a product called C18H22N2O2, right? So it had the same chemical formula we're looking at. And now we had a link. Right. We had a link between this chemical formula we're chasing and something that wow. started as a tire ingredient. So we bought some 6PPD, we ozonated it, and it made the same compound. And it was really toxic to coho salmon. Wow. And that was kind of, the, wow. you know, that's how we figured out what was killing these fish. So the key c- c- contaminant pollutant within vehicle tire and within stormwater was this one 6PPD. Basically, so this is the the stuff that's, that's this is the smoking gun. This is the the culprit. Yeah, six PPD is a parent compound, right? So starting in the 1930s, there was a recognition that something in air broke down tire rubbers. So if you ever, mm. you know, if you ever go in the woods or you know go to a landfill and you see a super old tire somewhere, it might have these big giant cracks in it, like cracks you could almost like put your finger in, right? And that's actually created from ground level ozone. So there's a, there's a little bit of ozone in the air. It's actually a component of air pollution. Some of it's naturally formed. Some of it comes from like the hydrocarbons coming out of our tailpipes and stuff like that makes this ozone. And that breaks down your tires. Like it would crack your tires. Your tires would last like 5,000 kilometers, you know, 10,000 miles, something, you know, short and not the 50,000 or 80,000 or 100,000 kilometers. In the 1950s, they found this anti-ozonant 6-PPD was really effective at preventing that ozone damage to the tire rubber. So essentially added to all the tires in the world, and its job is basically to react with the ozone faster than the ozone can react with the rubber. 
so, so just to confirm, this 6PPD is an acute toxicant. It kills fish, large fish, quickly, and it's been used since probably the 50s in pretty much all car tyres across the planet. So they add the 6PPD into the tyres. It reacts with ozone, and it makes what's called 6PPD quinone. And so 6PPD quinone, it's this it's product chemical. Yeah. That's the one that is highly toxic to coho salmon. Right. So okay. it's almost like the 6PPD after it's reacted with the ozone gets much more toxic. Right? Yeah. Toxicity goes up, not down. But this, but this parent contaminant, this 6PPD, is, is essentially used in all car tires across the planet. To the best of my knowledge, it's in all car tires. When you buy a set of tires, like about 1% of the mass of the tire you're buying is 6PPD. So a new wow. set of tires, you might have 100 pounds of tire rubber on your car. Mm. You've purchased about one pound of 6PPD in that set of tires. It's yeah. a lot to take in. This is basically the study that you've done. It has obviously implications across the planet. When I first read about this um, article, and I'll include the links to the uh, articles in the, in, the, in the show notes, but I had, I had it in my head that Puget Sound or Puget Sound was actually a very small waterway. It's, it's massive. Yeah, yeah, um, it's and, and obviously, it's, it's the numbers, you, the fish kills, the proportions are staggering. But obviously, if this chemical is used across the planet, the implications of, of this is is enormous. So have, have, has anyone done any other assessments around the impacts of this chemical in other waterways across the planet since your study? Or yeah, I, mean, like- I think that's a hot area of research. A lot of people are looking. I'd first say people are finding it everywhere. You know, we called it ubiquitous in our original publication because we're like, you know, it's in all the rubber and tire rubber is everywhere. So yeah, it's going to be ubiquitous. But we really only had data from like the US West Coast. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was in all the roadway runoff we looked at, right? Since that study, researchers in Canada have documented it in snow melt, you know, coming off roads and roadway runoff. Um, It's been documented in Australia. Quite interestingly, it's been documented now in all the soils near roads. You know, there's a bunch of soil sampling analysis coming out that are saying, you know, you look in the soil. And then a research group in China, and I think maybe another one in Canada, have now documented it. it it's pretty widespread in urban air as well. A research group in China looked at the PM 2.5. That's particulate matter, 2.5 microns in size, like this fine particulate matter. They found that 81% of the particulate matter samples they looked at had this toxic chemical 6-BPD quinone in them. So if you think about, you know, your car driving rapidly down the road, it blows up all those fine particles, that dust up off the road yeah. surface. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're breathing this in as well. Uh, look, I don't know where I'm going to go. Good times, huh? Yeah, good well, times, good times. Because kinds <laughs> keep rolling on the tire. But okay, let's. Um, okay, it's questions. But you, you said there was thousands of chemicals in there uh, in a tire, and we've we've looked at one that's killing a particular fish in Puget Sound. With thousands of other chemicals, that's going to take a lot of work to work out what else it's doing. Are there any sort of red flag chemicals that you guys are seeing from your research that you're going, we're concerned about 6-DDT-5 or, you know, like, do you know what I mean? And my question really is, with, there's thousands of chemicals in here and we're just talking about one. Am I missing something? No, you're not missing something. There's obviously work to be done. Tires are not a unique product in having no. a substantial number of chemicals either used in their production or... Or a lot of these chemicals we see are also these transformation products. You know, you put something out in the environment and it degrades or breaks down. You know, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it stays the same. But often one chemical makes five products or 10 products or 20 products. And so you kind of have this expanding list of environmental pollutants where maybe we produce 100 chemicals that we use in industry. But out in the environment, that really represents 500 chemicals or 1,000 chemicals or 2,000 chemicals because they're all converting into other things. We have a tough task when it comes to working on environmental chemical fate and evaluating things like the safety or risk of things like that. Does it look like that this 6PPD is like the the key pollutant in like you know Jeremy's right there's a thousands of contaminants in stormwater for example is 6PPD looking like it might be the the real nasty standout chemical? 
at least with respect to coho salmon and, and some similar species, it seems to be right. But I, I can't really say if that's the case for human health or yeah, you know yeah. some sort of chronic impact where you're exposed to this for years at a time as an aquatic organism. You know, mm, mm. there's a number of things that are not nice in those mixtures. And, you know, we, we found other chemicals. I, I would say we consider them interesting chemicals, but they they didn't kill the coho salmon, right? They didn't turn yeah. out to be the toxic thing. I think some of our, our subsequent work, I mean, as far as we can tell, the 6-BPD quinone is among the, let's say, five or six almost most toxic chemicals found that impact aquatic mm-hmm. organisms. It's, the only other things we find with similar or greater toxicity are like organophosphate or organochlorine pesticides, you know, some of these yeah. super toxic, you know. Yeah keep this away from water type compounds. So it's it's pretty hot. Has there been any movement from the vehicle tie industry uh, since your study saying, okay, well, it's due is this 6PPD is an issue. Let's just swap it out with something else. Has that happened at all? I believe they're working on that. I, you know, um, again, I'm, I'm not in the middle of the tire industry. I, I hear things. <laughs> I talk to them. I have meetings with them. But okay. uh, I'm not sitting at that quiet table where they're making all the, the serious decisions for sure. I think there's a general recognition that there is an issue with tire leachate and with 6BPD. The industry has actually never denied that, you know, they've never said 6BPD is safe or 6BPD quinone is safe or something like that. And there seems to be an effort to find an alternative antiozinant and an alternative antioxidant to protect those tires, which is needed. You know, our tires need something to protect them from ozone damage. And I, I believe the industry is looking for an alternative. You, you say that, but surely, like, and, and you say that the vehicle industry isn't, isn't saying that 6PPD is safe, but surely by putting something out there on, on the market almost implies that the, that the company believes it is safe. Like we wouldn't sell, like I don't know, but guys on the on this uh, meeting, we wouldn't sell anything unless we thought it was suitably safe for the consumer. Surely, um, that's logical. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds good to me. I mean, yeah, it, it gets back yeah. to this, like, just foundation question: is how how does a company get permission to use chemicals without appropriately demonstrating that they are safe? And, you know, whilst we're focusing on one chemical and there's thousands and there's probably more that we don't even know about, the fact that they can use, use this without any sort of demonstrated knowledge, at least it seems they haven't done the analysis to actually show unequivocally that it is safe, particularly given that we are finding it, this chemical in particular, is killing these fish on mass scales. It's, I don't know, yeah. it's, a, it's a bit to take in. Yeah, it, it, it's a tricky space. I mean, you know, as a society, we're generating and using more chemicals faster than we can evaluate their safety. And so we mm. are creating hazards for ourselves, for sure. Like a, as a society, right? This isn't specific to any industry or any yeah. group of people. As a society, we're creating the risk of like serious hazards. And we've done this many times in the past and we mm. seem to continue to do it. I think in general, you know, industries look to biology to understand where chemicals are hazardous you know like we found a lot of hazardous chemicals when a bunch of workers start to get sick or you get a cancer cluster in a factory somewhere and it's like oh that factory is making x y and z one of those causes cancer or Hmm. there was a bunch of work on like endocrine disruption that started when they started to find all these like feminized fish you know they couldn't find any male fish in a river near people they were all female so something in there was like messing up endocrine function here it was like the coho salmon were telling us there was a problem right it rained the roads drained and the fish died and so Mm. most of our chemical toxicity is found after the fact and and that seems to be held up here we are getting better in screening things with cell assays and like even like computational modeling of like toxicity risks but i think the mechanism by which some of those insights translate into not making something is maybe not not so well done or, you know, just doesn't work well. Um, if, you know, if you're a chemical manufacturer, you can easily make a billion dollars like fast if you have a really cool chemical. 
That that is true, but there's also a significant commercial risk if you make a chemical that that does cause harm. And we only have to look at you mentioned there's historical examples, but yeah, DDT, lead in petrol, PFAS. You know, if you look at PFAS, oxycodone. Yeah, yeah. Like the the commercial implications, the financial implications of 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 finding out years down the track that your chemical causes problems are enormous. Like DuPont, they, they lost billions uh, yeah. from uh, uh, class actions uh, for PFAS contamination. But, but they're still a profitable company. And, yeah. Yeah. Business. and they're still <laughs> raking in dollars too. Yeah, so, yeah. that is yeah. true. Yeah, it's interesting. But look, I, I, we focused a lot on you know what we can do about the chemical industry and whatever, but how, how can we – okay, they, these impacts are obviously happening as we speak every time it rains in – in Puget Sound and probably elsewhere around the planet, in, in our city, ur- yeah, urbanised areas where we've got cars, people, etc. What can we do about it? How can we mitigate this issue? Yeah, that's that's a tricky question uh, with something like this. There's certain actions which are nice, easy individual actions, and there's other actions which are societal. And I think when it comes to something like a tire composition, we don't have any choice right now. All our tires have a six BPD in them, so if you're going to drive a car. You're probably going to have to engage with this in some fashion. Right now, I think we're interested in trying to understand if there's some best-in-class type options. Are there some tires that maybe have less of this compound used? You know, you could maybe choose a tire that's a salmon-safe tire or something that minimizes the amount of, of the toxic chemical that's used in it. Ultimately, we need to move as a society and, you know, use a political process, use economic process, use consumer choice to promote non-toxic compositions and safe chemical use in products. And the immediate short term, you know, you can do things like use public transit and drive less or try to like minimize that footprint. But that's probably not, that probably doesn't match the scale and scope of the issue, right? We, we really need a step change in ingredient use all over the place to really start to make a difference. You can physically screen tire wear off. I mean, in Seattle and Portland, Washington, you've got good regulations for motorways and you'll have some form of stormwater treatment. Down here in Australia, or I'm obviously in New Zealand, but over in Australia, there's currently no real legal requirement to treat uh, road runoff. So we, we know it's a massive problem. In New Zealand, we treat road runoff, anything over 40,000 vehicles per day. But in Australia, we don't. Now, that's, that's our fault, and we've got to clean our act up. But surely you can screen this out, stormwater management. Have you, you've obviously been in this game for a while. Have you looked at effective treatment measures? Yeah, um, stormwater treatment works. If you treat roadway runoff, if you treat stormwater, you remove chemicals and water quality improves. Even in the U.S., you know, you mentioned us having good regulations. Like the vast majority of stormwater and roadway runoff is untreated here too. You know, and this is a global issue. You know, we have we have so many miles of roads. We have so many kilometers yeah. of roads yeah. out there that we do not treat it all because just the cost of that would be really high. I, I think the places you find treatment here, even in the Pacific Northwest, which would be considered to be pretty environmentally friendly, right? It's places like parks, places near people. Maybe if you have a really busy road on maybe a small watershed, that gets treatment. But we have plenty of places where you essentially have a straight pipe from the highway to the river. Yeah, and look, we've been in stormwater treatment for 20 years. And the only way local governments or municipalities can trigger a event is when someone's doing a new development. All the new developments that you see out there, which have a less or a smaller contaminant load, they're a lot cleaner, they're a lot newer, they have treatment over in the US typically. Same here in Australia, same in New Zealand, wherever. But it's the existing urban environment that, you know, like in New Zealand, sorry, in Australia, we, we, we say around 95% of uh, the urban area, something along those lines, is not treated with stormwater treatment. And that those typically, those hotspots, are the high contaminant loading sites. So, you know, what what do we do? As you say, it's a money thing, but when fish are dying, when, uh, you know, when research like yours is coming out, surely the the local, you know, um, state of Washington or Tacoma or whatever, surely when you took this information to them and show them the direct link, what did they say about it? I mean, they play close attention and I'm... 
confident that over time, things will happen in this space. Initially, all these municipalities freak out because they realize how much money it'll cost. You know, the, the implications of having a toxic component at a toxic concentration in roadway runoff. Jen McIntyre, my collaborator, and kind of her team have shown for years now that there was an issue with the bulk roadway runoff. So it's almost not surprising that treatment was going to be needed. But once you get it to a point where it's like, if this compound is here at this concentration at this level, you know, you need to treat that because that will kill fish. That's that's a, a pretty serious point for most agencies and municipalities to deal with. And I, I I do see them responding. I do see a lot more discussion of treatment. I feel ultimately that's also one of these things that might lead us to source control, which is changing maybe what what's used in tire rubbers that that fixes it everywhere. But in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to need treatment to, to deal with this. And I, I'm hopeful that municipalities and agencies at various levels, local, state, federal, um, will respond and fix that issue. You know, you mentioned New Zealand. New Zealand is famous for its trout fishing. A couple of weeks ago, a paper came out that showed 6-BPD quinone toxicity to rainbow trout and brook trout, right? And so... I know New Zealand doesn't have coho salmon, but there's rainbow trout there. They die from this same chemical in the same way. They're not quite as sensitive as coho salmon. Coho salmon are more sensitive. But if New Zealand cares about rainbow trout, they should think about where the trout streams intersect busy roads. Flip me a link to that paper because it's um, it's super interesting and, and relative. But going back to, to something that you said, we in the pursuit of finding another chemical, say the tire companies will say, we've found a new one that's going to do the same. How long is it going to be until we do another study to find out what that chemical does? So I know it's politically tough because you've got to deal, like us, you've got to deal with regulatory agencies, municipalities, you've got to deal with the, the, the tire companies. You know, you, you want them to bring them along for the ride as well. I know it's tough, but if, if we don't have adequate treatment, at source treatment, and I mean now, it's going to be a very, very long time for us to, to play catch up. You know what I mean? There's going to be another chemical release from another tyre company that does this or does that. And I fear that even though the research has been sitting in front of us for some time, I mean, Brad and I have spoken about it for years. Mm-hmm. Why are we not treating tyres? And, it, and it, 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 it seems to be like even with now we know it's killing fish, we're still not going, oh, my God, what's yeah. it going to do to us? So there's no urgency here. Well, sorry. It feels like at times there's no urgency. Do you know what I mean, Brett? I think you're right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like uh, I, I, prior to Ed's and his team's study, I, I hadn't heard of 6PPD. But we were, we were very familiar with the fact that tyre wear and tear is a key pollutant. It's the n- number one source of microplastics in our uh, oceans and waterways. And, yeah, there's a real laxy-daisy approach to actually doing anything about it. Uh, like uh, the general response is, oh, people need to drive their cars. You know, what, what, you know, what, what do we do? To Ed's point, you know, it, it, it would be very expensive to put stormwater treatment infrastructure everywhere where you've got a road, but you can certainly target some of that uh, investment appropriately. You know, your, your small waterways where you know you've got salmon or, 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 or sensitive freshwater species downstream of a, of a busy road, surely you could look to install some infrastructure there and appropriately, you know, treat water, stormwater at source. Yeah, but but to Jeremy's point, I don't see anyone even talking about this sort of stuff in Australia. I'm not sure what it's like in New Zealand. I I don't have much familiarity elsewhere. But certainly in Australia, we're only treating new development. The roads, the highways, the busy urban roads, you know, Sydney Harbour, little waterways, high, high ecological value waterways, we're not doing anything. So whilst it's really interesting with this 6PPD chemical um, and its associated toxicity, regardless of 6PPD, even if they find an alternative solution, we need to actually stop the amount of crap washing off our roads ASAP because it can't be good, whether it's microplastics, sediment, heavy metals, whatever. There's a a chemical cocktail of pretty nasty stuff coming off our roads and it's just good, basically. It needs to be stopped. Well, it does need to be stopped. And and when you look what's happening, say, with big plastic manufacturers, Coca-Cola, look, in the last few years, how many greenwashing things have they started to do? You know, they're starting to go, hey, we're feeling the pinch here. We know that we're the biggest contributors. Where are the tyre companies in in this conversation? Why, why Brad, for for our sake, why are we not hitting them up in Australia saying, Mm. hey, guys, um, do you want to sort of contribute here? I mean... 
it's Maybe the biggest, well, it's the biggest form of microplastics in our oceans, and yet there's no regulation to it whatsoever. No. And they're not even at the table. So, Brad, we'll get them to the table. Maybe they'll come on the Ocean Protect <laughs> podcast. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, we'll see. But look, this has been a fascinating chat. Yeah, um, I yeah. feel as though we could talk all day. It's, it's been so good to get your insight on this because I've obviously read your articles, and there is a paper published in the Journal of Science, which is it's almost like reading Chinese, it's so technical. Uh, it's oh, it's so <laughs> wonderfully written. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Obviously, there's some very smart individuals behind this research, far smarter than I am, uh, that's for sure. But uh, it's fantastic research. It's, it's great work. And to, for that, I congratulate you. And, and, and thank and you so team. much for coming. Yeah, and your team. And thank you so much for coming on our show. And, and to be honest, it's also great that you actually are optimistic around, you know, you think, well, there's an issue here. You are, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you indicated over the next 10, 20 years, you, you are confident that we actually will do a better job of actually doing something about this issue. Hopeful, hopeful. I'm, I'm hopeful. hopeful that people will care too. You know, I mean, you're, a lot of the points you brought up, people just have to care. And I think recognize that the chemicals we use, the consumer products we use, they don't just disappear when we're done using them, right? They have, mm. they have an impact on the environment. We have to just pay attention to that. We have to raise that as an issue as a society. Yep. You know, get on the phone, call some local representation or state representation or national representation, or vote with your dollars. Right? You can do a lot by voting with your dollars as well. So yeah, yeah. I think a, like a simple call to action would be to for the, for the average listener just ask their local regulatory authority, council, EPA. You know, what are they doing about mitigating the impacts of road runoff on waterway health? Yeah. One thing that we always find is people do the great research and then no one sort of hears about it. So for all our thousands of listeners, I hope all, um, you know, it's really great to, to, to hear it from the horse's mouth, mm, so to speak. And, absolutely. And, and your optimism. Here's to Pirelli and um, Firestone making the next blue tyre. So for all the yeah. tree-hugging environmentalists out there like us, we can choose yeah. a more expensive one that doesn't affect the environment. So for know, humans. All yeah. humans, that would be a better one. But uh, no, thanks, mate. I know it's um, uh, taking time out of your busy, busy schedule in Hawaii to uh, talk to us. <laughs> 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 but thanks very much, man. Um, it, it really means a lot for, for people like you coming on our show. And, um, and yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.